Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the latest edition of CouncilCast, the official podcast of the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers. I'm Katie Oberkirker, Director on the Market Intelligence Team here at the Council. Here with me today is Darren Rowe, the Chief Innovation Officer for Wamberg Genomic Advisors. WGA delivers clinical-grade genomic programs and services to employees with the purpose of improving health, wellness, and longevity. If you tuned in last year, you may have heard me sit down with Darren's colleague, Nick Belanca. He's the EVP of Sales and Business Development. That conversation was really focused on WGA's go-to-market strategy and how genetic-based clinical care is evolving the healthcare industry overall. But today, I'd like to have more of a patient-centered lens um, to focus on the innovation that's propelling WGA and how genomics promotes a more holistic view of patient health. Well, Darren, thanks for joining me. Our listeners, I think, got a taste of what Wamberg is working on from a go-to-market perspective. So I'd like to start today by talking about some of the research that's provided the foundation for WGA's approach to genomics. So thinking about what factors are driving up healthcare costs, how patient behavior impacts that, um, and other environmental factors that um, you know, have led you all to create your solution. Sure, yeah, that's a good question to start with. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's, there's a ton of research across different elements of the healthcare system. And so I, I guess, you know, as, as a genomics-based company, that was our starting point. We wanted to understand uh, what, what innovations in genomics were at the point where they were ready for large-scale distribution, but were being held up due to the way the healthcare system is structured. So if you take, for example, um, uh, cancer genomic profiling, this is something that is fairly routine in the large academic centers, and if you're willing to pay for it. And these, you know, some of these costs can be seven, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars $10,000. But if you're willing to pay for it, if you have the means and you're in the right hospital, this is a relatively routine approach. And this is a, a, a sort of process that effectively takes a piece of cancer tumor, looks at it in a sort of at, at, the, at the, the genetic, the DNA level to determine what that cancer is being driven by. <clears throat> so genes mutate and those mutations uh, will, will, will help us understand whether a cancer will respond to a particular treatment or not. Now, as I said, that's fairly routine, but it, it's not being done at scale for a whole variety of reasons, largely down to cost. So that was a start point. So we, we kind of surveyed um, the genomic landscape and there are currently around 76 thousand different types of tests. So you can imagine it's a mammoth task. So the first thing we did is we, we, we assembled a group of, of, of um, scientists, of doctors and so on, and we interrogated that landscape. And we came up with a handful of, of, of technologies that we knew could deliver the kind of output and the kind of outcomes that we, that we wanted to deliver. That was the first, the first part. The second part was to look across the wider landscape and say, okay, so when you take cancer, what are the big roadblocks that um, prevent people from having a good outcome? How, well, what, what sort of things do people generally find 
um, difficult to manage? Or what are the things that uh, drive costs? And when, when you think about cancer, I guess there's really there's two elements. There's the cost element uh, from a financial perspective, which is often you know, more relevant to the, the payer, to the employer. And then there's the human cost. What does this mean to an individual patient? So we started to research what both of those um, sort of areas of healthcare look like. And it became quite obvious that there were three or four big issues that we could see frequently got in the way of a good outcome. And those, those could be sort of categorized into the, um, the, the financial issue for the, for the, for the payer, for the, for the employer, um, the amount of wastage and the amount of um, money that goes into the healthcare system that would become, that is often difficult to manage or difficult to control. So what could we do outside of that to, 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 to rein in some of those costs? And then what about the cost, the financial costs from the uh, patient perspective? So we started to realize that this, this concept of financial toxicity is a real problem. Um, around about 30 odd percent of people that get cancer in the US will deplete their assets, their financial assets, whether it be equity in their home, life savings, um, 401ks, whatever it might be. And that's a clearly, you know, clearly is a big issue because if you, you know, if you go bankrupt or if you have some, you know, these significant financial issues to deal with, then some of those people don't even finish their treatment. They have to make really horrible choices around paying their mortgage or, or, or paying for treatment. And that obviously has an impact on overall cost and outcome and so on. So there was the cost issue. There, then there was the sort of practical issue around the navigation. There was the um, issue that we, that, we, that we really became quite fascinated around, which was health literacy. So people's understanding of what's real, what's not, um, what sources of information to trust and what not to trust. Um, and, if, and we started to build up a sort of map of the universe, if you like. And like I said, it became quite obvious that genomics was one element, cost was another element, practical um, sort of knowledge and navigation was another element. And then the final piece was, well, if you can do all of those things, how do you actually access the treatments and how do you actually get into the kind of treatments that you probably need which you may not be able to access depending on where you live and there's huge inequality when you look at um, geography and where people live so um, we developed a clinical trial um, program to kind of address some of those uh, issues relating to people getting to in, in, into the right sort of treatment. So that, that was our approach. It, it, was, it was very much around genomics and the other key issues in the healthcare system that prevent people from having a good outcome. That, that's a really helpful breakdown of the way you all approach, you know, creating the, this genomics landscape and, and how does it look right now in the US. And I think it's a good point you know, that a lot of times when people get sick, it's not just, you know, all right, I, I have cancer, I need to go get treatment. It's, you know, there are so many other factors that play into that, which, you know, I think your clinical trial program, you know, trying to sort of transcend some of these geographical financial barriers really speaks to social determinants of health. So, you know, how does your situation as a person in general affect how you're going to get care? And so I think that, you know, that absolutely makes sense. I was just going to add to what you just said there around the social determinants of, of health. And we, we see this very clearly with, with, within cancer because <clears throat> there's a kind of paradox associated with cancer in that it seems to affect um, the lower socioeconomic groups disproportionately. Um, 
you know, if if you have a lower income, you're you're actually more likely to to get cancer. If you live in certain areas, certain low income areas um, across the U.S., the, you know, the cancer incidence rates are higher. Um, the second paradox is that um, people that earn less money tend to find it more difficult to continue working when they have cancer because they tend to be more manual type jobs or at least jobs that make it more difficult to continue working through treatment and that's a paradox in itself because cancer is one of the most expensive diseases to deal with both both from a, an employer and an employee um, perspective so you know if you're an employee um, that has um, the type of job that means you know you need to be uh, you know, on site, it's not something that you can do from home. It, it, you know, it's maybe it's a more physical role. Um, working through cancer is going to be difficult. So the, the, the knock-on effect is that you probably have a reduction in your income. At the same time, your outgoings will go up significantly. And there's a lot of data that suggests that can be hundreds, if not thousands of extra uh, dollars going out your door every month. Um, and so it's a, it's, it is a real challenge. It's a, it's a real challenge. It's almost like a perfect storm. So that was something that we really wanted to get our arms around because, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good a solution is, if it doesn't work in the real world, it, 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 it doesn't work. So, you know, that, that was a big issue for us. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the accessibility part of healthcare is, you know, obviously just as important as the affordability and the, the quality of care. Um, yeah. Let me come back, though, to something, uh, a number you had mentioned in the beginning of the conversation, that there are, you know, 76,000, I think, genetic tests on the market. Um, and I had read, actually, the other day that, you know, 23andMe, they had a slump in their sales, and they laid off, you know, a, a significant percentage of their workforce. Is that, which could be due to demand um, or, you know, the, the B2C experience that they're creating? And obviously, these tests are all a little bit different. What, you know, what is the, is the dialogue around the affordances of these types of tests and, and the ones that you've identified as, as the most effective? You know, what, what are the qualities that make those better genetic tests? So, yeah, so let's, let's address the, the 23andMe question first, because you're right, they, they laid off uh, 100 or so of their, um, I think it was part of their sales team, and that's directly related to uh, a decline in demand. And I, I think it's quite clear from my perspective why we're seeing that. And it's really down to the fact that 23andMe and Ancestry and other what we would call recreational type tests have kind of hit their peak in that the early adopters have done them. The people that now are interested are interested in tests that have a clinical application. And by that, I mean tests that you're able to take to your doctor and make decisions about. And you can't really do that with the sort of 23 million ancestry type tests. As I say, we, we refer to them as recreational tests. They're good fun. They were a great prelude into the genomics and genetics world and I think they've helped get genetics into the into the narrative and into the conversation um, but it feels to me like they've almost run their course now because the the whole genetics community is moving on 
So I think what you'll see from the likes of 23andMe and Ancestry is that they'll start to develop more sophistication in their tests. They, they'll get clinically graded tests and you know, they'll become actionable. You'll be able to do something medically actionable or clinically actionable with their results, which you can't now. So I think, I think that's, that's really indicative of the fact that the genetics world is starting to mature now. It's no, no, it's no longer a novelty. People are, people are not so interested in finding out whether they have blue hair or, sorry, blue eyes or brown hair. They're actually interested now in determining their risk of certain diseases or, you know, how, how they might be treated for a certain disease. And so I think, I think the whole world is evolving. Um, so I think that's where we've got to. In terms of what makes one test better than the other. So of those 75, of those 76,000 odd tests, um, a significant majority of them are what we call single hotspot tests. So these would be for an individual single known mutation. So you're probably, you're probably familiar with the BRCA gene. So you think about our, our, our bodies are roughly made up of around 25, 26,000 genes. And those genes have um, an influence on, you know, how we... Um, react to certain diseases, our propensity for disease. Um, they they define you know how tall we are. They define what color hair we have, and so on. So they're really the blueprint of who we are. Now, um, individual genes can become sort of broken or mutated, and so a lot of that seven six thousand um, current number of tests on the market look at just an individual gene. So that's useful in a clinical setting. And there are you know, a number of drugs that have been designed to work on an individual gene mutation. So before uh, being able to, 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 to access a particular treatment, um, a doctor will, will run one of those individual hotspot tests and they're called companion diagnostics. And if, and if, you, if you have that right mutation, then you could be potentially eligible for that drug. So that's where a lot of that activity is. Coming back a level is where you start to get not just one gene, but multiple genes. So, you know, it could be a half a dozen or so, but it could be many hundreds. And that's the space that we're in, and that's the space that most people are likely to encounter when they, when they get involved in anything that's genetic or genomically driven. That's the sort of conversation they're likely to be having. Um, what makes a good test better, or what makes a test better over a, 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 a you know, less high quality test is the, 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 the depth and breadth of the assessment of that gene. So the, the easiest way to describe it is if you think of a gene as a book, um, a, a good quality test will be looking at every single page, whereas a, a lower quality test will just be looking at one or two chapters. And that's an easy way to kind of understand it really. Um, it's about the, the, the breadth of the analysis that goes into that individual gene, looking at the gene, um, and then also the interpretation of that result. So once you've kind of read the book, if you like, you then need to do something with that information and you need to sort of validate that information against a known database. Um, and so that, that, that interpretation is, is really is, you know, just as important. So they're the sort of factors that determine whether a test is high quality uh, or lower quality. That's really helpful. Thank you. So continuing on that thread, thinking about the 
not only the depth and breadth of the assessment of the gene and the way that you're able to interpret it, but then when you present all of that information back to the end user, so I, I guess either the, the provider or the clinician, also the patient, what are you all doing right now to, to improve your user experience? So, I think that's actually a big question, Katie, and I'll tell you why. Because from our perspective, there's, there's kind of two, two user experiences. There's the user experience that the majority of our members go through, which doesn't involve having cancer. You know, the vast majority of us will not have cancer um, at any given point. So, you know, how do we, how do, how do we define or how, how have we addressed that group of individuals who are Cancer Guardian members that don't have cancer? Well, we've done... Um, I think uh, uh, a pretty reasonable job in, in understanding the way people want to, in, uh, want, want to receive that information. So they start with a genetic test, which is the type of test you do to assess or to understand your risk of getting cancer. Um, you can do this for other types of diseases, but we really just focus on cancer, as you know. Um, so that information comes to you in a report, and it's also accompanied with um, a genetic counsellor who can talk you through the results. Now, it's a fairly easy report to understand. Um, if you want to get into the details as, a, as an individual member, you can, but it really, it's laid out in sort of lay terms, so it's, it's easy to understand. It doesn't use jargon. Um, it, it, you know, it's really designed to, to give you a very simple understanding of your risk. Now, as I say, you know, we, we want to do everything in the most responsible way. So. As part of that user experience, you'll also be talking to a genetic counselor. So a genetic counselor is someone who is trained in genetics and can help you not just interpret and understand and ask questions and so on, but should you be um, a higher risk, should your report suggest that you're a higher risk individual, they're going to know how to support you. They're going to know what to say to you to help you put it into context because you know, contrary to what a lot of people think, your, your genes don't define you. It, it represents a relatively small overall part of the risk. Um, so it's not anything to panic about in most cases, but just going through that process and having a professional explain it to you is, is, is very reassuring. So I, I, guess, I guess my answer to your question, Katie, is it's about how the information is laid out and it's about um, providing access to people who can also help you understand it. That's the, that's the first thing. The second thing around you know, the, the user experience from a cancer patient's perspective, again, we have uh, oncology nurses who sort of hold your hand throughout the whole process. But as it relates just to the genomics piece, once you've gone through a genomics test, now genomics testing is slightly different to genetics testing. Genomics is really looking at the individual cancer. So once an individual has been diagnosed with cancer, we can take a piece of their tumor and we can test that to, to help the oncologist um, figure out what the most effective treatments might be. Now that information is presented directly back to the doctor, to the oncologist, and clearly that, that's a much more um, technical, a more sort of clinically technical uh, report that goes back to the doctor. And again, there are people on hand to help doctors even understand those, but for the most part, patients don't really need to get involved in that. The doctors tend to do a pretty good job in explaining that back to the patient. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. That's the sort of the, the, the very sort of top line user part of the genomics piece. 
But with regards to some of the other things, the financial navigation, um, some of the health literacy, the clinical trials, again, we've, we've developed um, sort of programs that are very, um, how would I describe it? It's a very white glove. So we recognize that pretty much anything to do with healthcare is complicated. You know, it's a very fragmented and siloed system. So we've, we've, we've kind of created all of our experiences around having somebody with you, a uh, sort of handholder, if you like, this sort of white glove type experience. Um, so we can, we know, we, we can use things like um, video conferencing calls and so on and so on. But ultimately what we found is that people like to talk to real people. They like to have somebody explain things to them. They like to have somebody do these things for them and sort of facilitate these things. Um, so our user experience is actually, um, it's, it's, it's very people heavy, but it's, it's very personal. And, you know, when, you, when, when somebody's dealing with cancer, it's very easy to get lost in a system. And that's what we wanted to avoid. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is the user experience that we've created is, is, is very personal and very sort of high touch. I mean, healthcare, I think you see this in the benefit space overall is trending toward more individualized, customized, personal benefits programs. That's what, that's what employees expect now. I mean, they want an offering that makes sense to them. And I would imagine that's especially true when it comes to receiving a cancer diagnosis. So let me, let me move here to focus on the employer for a moment. And I know you all work with employers to think about how you're going to deploy an effective cancer strategy. What yeah. are some of the trends you're seeing among your employer clients? You know, what are they, what are they coming to you with? What are their, what are their challenges? What are they asking for? And, you know, are they, are they asking for anything differently than they did when you all first started WGA? Um, I, I think, I mean, it, it, like most things, it's, it's a mixed bag. You've obviously got employers who are very forward thinking, very innovative in their approach, and they always want to be ahead of the curve. And then you've got the, the sort of the, the, the middle group who just want to be doing a good job, but, you know, aren't necessarily looking to be leaders. And then you've, you've got the sort of laggards who you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do what's required, but it's, it's more of a tick box exercise. Gladly, I think I'm certainly seeing that the latter group are becoming, you know, the minority. Um, there's, there's clearly, as, as the employer and the labor market gets younger, <clears throat> more people coming in to the boardroom now with, you know, sort of millennial age experience and they definitely have a different view of the world i think people are looking for more meaningful employment they're looking for their employment to be an extension of their values and i think all of that creates the type of culture that just plays into this this idea that a benefits package should be personalized and it should speak to the people and it should enhance the culture so we're definitely seeing that cancer is one of those diseases that resonates with most people so whilst on one hand you've got more millennials come into the workplace. You've also got an aging workforce as well. You know, we've got more over 65s than we've had. And as you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, you know, aren't in a financial position to retire. And these are people that are in the prime cancer age. So we've, we've got an interesting um, sort of environment. Um, 
for a lot of millennials and their, their, their parents are at that sort of cancer age. So I think it resonates with a lot of people and there's definitely a, an understanding and appreciation for the sort of the complexities involved in, in not just with cancer, but in healthcare generally and the, the spiraling costs. So I think what we're starting to see is that people appreciate that cancer is a standalone disease. Um, it's one of the most expensive items, you know, that we have to deal with um, as an employer. Um, it's certainly one of the most um, costly diseases from a human perspective. Um, you know, we talk about cancer being a, a financial, uh, practical, a clinical and emotional problem. You know, it, it spans kind of all areas of our lives. And I think that's becoming, uh, it, it, not, it, it was always obvious, but I think now companies more than ever are, are starting to appreciate that to, to, to strategize and to plan around cancer is a smart move because when all said and done, the healthcare system is unworldly, it's expensive. You know, a, a healthcare budget of around three and a half trillion dollars of which about a quarter is wasted. And that wasted budget ultimately flows down to every single employer. And so there's a big chunk of that spend that is to a degree out of our control because once an individual goes into the healthcare system and it's very difficult to control them, it's very difficult to control the experience they have. Um, and, you know, it, it's encouraging for me to, you know, I, I meet a lot of doctors and I meet a lot of influencers and, you know, you've now got very prominent doctors calling out the healthcare system for what it is. You know, um, we have a lot of price gouging. We have a lot of, um, you know, as a lack of transparency, we have uh, a lot of dual billing and, you know, just, just really horrendous examples. In fact, I'm, I'm looking at a, a chart now, um, you know, when you, when you get into some of the details of the cost, you know, administrative complexity, $265 billion a year, price failures, overcharging, $240 billion a year, failure of care delivery, $165 billion. You know, it goes on and on. So a lot of that is difficult for us to control. So the best way to control that is to, is to understand it and have a strategy. And, and a big piece of that strategy is around in, in informing employees how to advocate for themselves, um, helping them navigate through that system so that they are reducing the, the, the chance of being a victim to one of these, you know, um, huge numbers of dollars that are wasted every year. So I, I think we're generally just seeing a, um, a better understanding and a deeper appreciation for a specific cancer strategy. We're seeing that Genomics and genetics are no longer these really out there innovative sort of concepts. They are now part of the mainstream narrative. Um, people are getting comfortable with them. I think in the last six months, we've started to see uh, people getting more confident with the exchange of data. That was always something that people were a little bit concerned around, you know, data and genomic data and so on. Um, but I think increasingly people are realizing that it's no different to your cholesterol level or your bank details. Um, and I think people are getting increasingly comfortable with that now. So from my perspective, from an innovation perspective, it's, it's encouraging to see that the world is moving in the right direction. Even though there are a lot of challenges, we are clearly moving in the right direction. Someone who can advocate for themselves, someone who uh, can access their own medical data, someone who is prepared to ask the right questions, somebody who can be involved in the decision-making process. 
is likely to have a better outcome. They're likely to cost less money. And there's studies that would support that. Um, you know, from, a, from an employer perspective, you know, things like making primary care access easy, that's, a, that's probably one of the best investments you can make. You know, if you can capture cancer or any other disease early and encourage people to have healthy behaviors, then, you know, the, the long-term savings are significant, or even the short to mid-term savings are significant. Um, help your employees improve their general health literacy. Um, help manage financial toxicity. As I said, if you've got a patient or an employee who's going through cancer treatment, but it really applies to anything, but if they're going through cancer treatment and um, on the one hand, you know, as an employer, you're giving them access to, you know, some really great facilities, um, you know, top international academic type centers. Um, but on the other hand, they can't afford their high deductibles or, some of the treatment that they need or some of the tests that they need or some of the other supported services they need um, may be further from their home or may even be out of network and all the complexities around in and out of network. You know, bills and out-of-pocket expenses can soon mount up. Um, so if you've got someone who's worried about paying their mortgage or someone who, uh, for about 10% of these employees who are insured, um, you know, they will actually stop taking their medication. But if you're, if you're funding medication and a, and, and a patient isn't able to leverage it or they're worried or they've got other comorbidities around depression or anxiety or something like that, then, you know, you're, you're almost throwing good money after bad. So helping people to plan and uh, manage their finances um, as it relates to healthcare is, is, is really important. Cancer uh, is very complex, so making second opinions easy to access is a, is a, is a, is a good strategy um, <coughs> excuse me, and um, trying to develop these transparent provider networks where it's about value and not volume you know um, we're, we're clearly moving in that direction but I think it's gonna it's gonna be a long time before we're fully in a, in a sort of transparent value value based market but you know as an individual employer there's definitely things that you can do I mean I to your point employers make up a huge percentage of the marketplace and to the extent that they can leverage their purchasing power, you know, that would mean, that would mean a lot. Well, I think this has been, this has been really helpful just to understand how you all have taken a holistic approach to looking at genomics. And it's, it's obviously about much more than the technology and the, in the innovation. It's, it's about, you know, meeting employees where they are and being able to, you know, understand this type of innovation in context. Um, so yeah. before we finish up, I just wanted to ask if there's anything else that you wanted to add. No, I think, I think you've covered everything, Katie. I think um, probably just to sort of highlight the fact that, as you alluded to there in your sort of closing remarks, <clears throat> the healthcare system is complicated and genomics is equally as complicated and trying to implement a genomics-based strategy or genomics-based program requires an understanding of some of the other challenges that uh, cancer patients are likely to run into because unless you can somehow figure out how to eradicate or reduce some of those challenges, we're never going to be able to leverage the, the, the full capabilities of genomics. And, and that's a shame because when we look at the way healthcare is moving, you know, genomics is the biggest 
step change we've seen. And it will be the biggest step change in our lifetime. Um, it is changing every aspect of our lives. It is changing every aspect of healthcare. Um, over the next few years, it will be part of our, our, our life. You know, there's no question. Um, we are, you know, we're already seeing babies having their whole genome sequenced, and then they'll have a lifetime of precision medicine. You know, we're, we're seeing some dramatic improvements in our understanding of the way genes mutate. And CRISPR, another technology, gives us the ability to even rectify some of those mistakes even before a child is born. So we're, you know, we're really on the, on the cusp and at the start of a, a huge genomics revolution. So now is the right time to start thinking about these things, but you've got to do it in a responsible way. So I'm pleased that you sort of highlighted the fact that, <clears throat> you know, to, to do this properly, you've really got to look at, look at it in that holistic manner um, that we talked about. And I think if we do that, if we're responsible, um, if, we, if we use the right language and, you know, if we're transparent in how we deliver these things, I, I don't honestly believe it, 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 it has the potential to, to change everything. And, um, you know, we can talk about cost, we can talk about outcome, we can talk about experience. I, I think genomics has the potential to touch all of those positively. So, um, yeah, we're really excited to, uh, to be a part of that movement right now. Great. Well, thank you, Darren. Um, really appreciate your time. And thank you for listening to CouncilCast. You can listen, listen more on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Please subscribe and leave us a review or rating to tell us how we're doing. If you have any questions or comments for us, you can find us at ciab.com, at the CIAB on Twitter, or you can email in at councilcast at ciab.com. See you next time. Mm -hmm.